So if you don't know me, I'm Grant. I'm one of the pastors or the elders here at Harbour City. And um, I know probably being up here, I often share a little bit about myself, and you do get to know me probably better than I even realize. But something some of you might not know is that I used to skateboard a lot. I was like really into skateboarding, probably from about the age of 12 into my mid-20s. I spent a lot of time at skate parks and parking lots, at schools, wherever there was some good tar. Oh, Christo, come on, just because you can't do it. He's just doing this at the back, you know, just discouraging me from the back. So I absolutely loved skateboarding, and I spent a ton of time doing it. And I remember being 12 in grade 7 and going with my friends Michael and Howard to skate for the first time. So they were going to Thomas More School, which is a pretty good place to skateboard if you are looking for a spot. And we went there, and we got going. I had a ton of fun, but I was really, really bad. Because you know what it's like when you start something new, you're learning the ropes and trying to work out how to do this. So everyone as a kid, or a lot of us as kids, probably had a skateboard or would try from time to time. And I could ride one, but like these were proper boards with like bearings that made the boards go fast. And like trying to take your foot off to actually push and go faster, that was like a whole balancing act for me. So I definitely fell a couple of times. And then we moved from just riding around to actually starting to do tricks. And they thought, I will teach this guy how to ollie. Now, if you don't know what that is, an ollie is like a bunny hop or like trying to pop the board in the air. You kind of push back on the back and the board hops in the air, you know. So these guys, these pros, these were heroes in my eyes because they'd been skateboarding for like two or three weeks. They really knew what they were doing. So they were showing me the ropes and they could ollie about that high, like maybe a centimeter off the ground. My mind was blown. I was like, these guys are rock stars and I wanted to be like them. And I could probably get like a millimeter off the ground. They were saying that. Maybe I wasn't even getting off the ground by the end. And then we were trying to get up on the curb. So you kind of ride at a curb like this, push, and then do your best to like pop on and get on top of the curb. And me, knowing nothing about this, this is the first time I'm trying, I'm basically just trying to slam the board into the curb as hard as I can, hope it jumps up and I don't lose teeth and I land on it and I keep going. That was the gist of like my riding the first time. And then over the next couple of weeks, as we did this more and more, I I probably did actually learn to get off the ground and I could ollie like a centimeter. And like in those early days, that's how we measured it. You know, it was like one or two centimeters and then it became one or two bricks. And we'd start to like show up at places together with a couple of bricks and we'd put them on top of each other or on their sides or up vertically. And as we got better, we could jump higher and higher. And I'm just bragging a little bit about how good I got. But like probably at my peak, I could ollie one of those black plastic dustbins So I feel like that deserves like a little bit of recognition. That's amazing. That's like my one achievement in life that I've gotten really, really good at. So I was good enough to ollie over a bin. Um, Sorry, guys. I need some affirmation. I'm probably becoming a dad in the next few days. Want to still feel cool and relevant and young. That's just me wanting some attention. I'm sorry. But in those early days, what I'm trying to say is I was really, really bad. I couldn't jump the board at all. It was really, really hard work. But over time, as I progressed, as we practiced, as we trained, I got a little bit better at this whole ollieing thing. I could do more tricks. I was a little bit better. But if in those early days, like that first day skateboarding at Thomas More, if I had tried to ollie over a dustbin, if I had tried to do a trick down a set of stairs or like to grind or slide down a rail, I would have died. You know, it would have been, I would have broken an arm or a leg. I would have fallen on my head. And some of you are like, Grant, come on, try, man. Joshua 1 verse 8, be strong and courageous. Like, give it a go. If I had done that with the skill level I had, it wouldn't have been wise. You know, this was not just like a give it a go kind of thing. I needed to build towards some of those things. I needed to train. I needed to practice. I need effort. And over time, I would be able to do some of those things that I couldn't do before. And I did. I got better. 
in the school holidays and on the weekends, what we would do is we'd spend hours and hours like practicing tricks, learning new things, and developing. And there was this mindset shift that happened in me somewhere along the line where, and if you don't know that these exist, they do. There's skateboarding magazines, skateboarding videos that you can watch. I would be watching these or reading through a magazine and looking at tricks, and there was like this mindset shift that happened where I realized these things that I saw and was so impressed by in a video or a magazine, I could do, you know? If I put in the effort, it wasn't that hard. It was just the right foot placements, the right pressure, the right balance, the right movement. If I tried long enough, I could start to learn how to do those tricks. You know, I'd get the movements right, and eventually I could do that kind of thing. And I started to do that. And I'm saying that today because that's the same for all of us. With a bit of practice, with a bit of effort, with a bit of time, we can learn to do some of the things that we haven't been able to do before. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in the series called How We Change, looking at personal transformation, or it's what theologians would call sanctification, becoming like Jesus. And we've really spent uh, these last four weeks looking at the God part, like the God foundation of what He does in helping us change from the inside out to become more and more like Him. But this series is both about God's work and our work. We're looking at God's role and how we change and the role that we play, the work that we do in all of this stuff. And I have joked a few times in the series that some of you are probably feeling a bit uneasy when we talk about our work. Because for Christians, work is a bit of a swear word. You know, work is like something we're like, you know, stay away. And I say that because theologically, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So some of you might even be sitting there as I say this, and you're like initially putting up Ephesians 2 in your mind, like, it's not our work. It's His grace entirely that saves us. And you're completely right. We're saved by His grace. We're saved by what He does. And I think maybe there's some of you on the other end of the spectrum are sitting there. And as I say this stuff about it's all about His work, we're saved by grace, not by what we do, you're sitting there blown away because your experience of Christianity has been maybe a more traditional or religious or legalistic or moralistic one where it's all been about what you do. It's been entirely your work. You know, your prayers, your efforts, trying to be a good person, do the right thing, please God, all of that stuff. So you're sitting here a little bit wary of me talking about grace because that doesn't really fit in with your experience of Jesus and Christianity and what it's all about. So I want to speak to both groups a little bit this morning. And I want to try and speak into both of those things because we're not actually just talking about one concept, we're talking about two. Talking about justification and sanctification, if those words make any sense to you. So justification means that we are made right before God entirely by the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And this happens instantaneously. It just happens in a moment. Even if you don't know when that moment that you got saved or what justified was, if you don't know, that's okay. But it happens instantaneously. It's not a process. God alone in his mercy on the cross reaches down to us and he saves us. And I want you to know that if you're here today and you walked in and you know that you weren't a Christian this morning, I want you to know that you could leave here as a Christian today. Like you could respond to God, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your life looks like at the moment. He could forgive you. He could wash you clean of sin or shame or guilt. He could adopt you because God chooses us. He, he wants us, as we sang about this morning. He loves you and he would love you to be his son or daughter. And if this morning you don't believe that you deserve that, that you're good enough, that you've done enough, it's not how it works. Jesus has done everything that you could become part of God's family. That's justification. Sanctification is a little bit different. 
Sanctification is like part two of the process because this is the, the change or transformation or sanctification that happens after we get saved, after we start this journey with Jesus. Now, it's similar to justification in this way, that it's initiated and empowered by God. God starts this process and he gives you the power to change. But it's also a little bit different because it doesn't happen instantaneously and it does require our effort. In fact, sanctification is going to be a lifelong process of change. You're never going to be perfect until Jesus returns or until you go to be with him. But we're going to be going through this process, as Ona shared last week, of changing from one degree of glory to the next, becoming more and more like God slowly over time. And that does demand our work or effort. So justification is just God's work, but sanctification is God's work and our work. It's a partnership of us working together. For those of you wanting a little bit of scripture, Romans 8 verse 13 says this, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You see that tension there? Who, who's the one who does the work? Who's the one who does the work? Because it says that we put to death the misdeeds of the body, but that we do it by the Spirit. We're active in this, and God is active in this. Or maybe let me show you another scripture. Philippians 2 verse 12. It commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's our work. And then the very next verse in verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to work. It's talking about our motives and our actions or our behaviors. To will and to work for his good pleasure. What about Colossians 1 verse 29? It says, For this I toil. Struggling. How crazy are those words? That word struggling in Greek is the word agonizomai. It's where we get the word agony from. We struggle agonizing. This is hard work that he's talking about here. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. I don't know how you are going to answer the question how we change by the end of the series, but biblically, our answer needs to involve both our work and God's work if we want to be true to Scripture. So how do we do this? If you've got a Bible, can I ask you to turn to 1 Timothy 4? It will pop up on the screen behind me. But really this morning we want to look at how we change to live free, to become more like Jesus, to overcome sin, uh, to live outside of bondage, to overcome some of the struggles and things we're dealing with in our lives. And this passage gives us a great clue on how we change and become more like Jesus. It says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, weird religious ideas. Rather, train yourself for righteousness. I want to emphasize that. Train yourself for, right, for godliness. For while uh, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end... This is the goal. This is where we're heading to. This is the end, becoming like Christ or godliness. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I want to read you verse 7 and 8 out of the message translation, which puts it in maybe a more everyday kind of way. It says, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Like Paul's kind of like spiritually fat shaming us with those lines. Exercise daily in God, no spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, 
but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making me fit both today and forever. I think reading this with like exercise and health and diet and training all being very popular, and particularly like a really big deal in Durban, I feel like this seems like such a good scripture for Durbanites to read through and think about. Like this seems very relevant to us because Paul is speaking about health here and he's saying it's good. It's good to go to the gym. It's good to train. It's good to eat healthily. It's good to make sure you look good and you feel good. You know, that's a really, really good thing. But at the same time, this passage isn't just championing like a healthy lifestyle. He's actually challenging our priorities a little bit. Paul's being a bit subversive in the way that he communicates. And he's saying to us that each one of us should pay more attention to our spiritual health and fitness than we do to our physical health and fitness. For some of us, that's going to burn a little bit, you know, because of some of the priorities in our lives. But Paul is saying to us, what are you prioritizing? And he says the spiritual health one, the spiritual fitness one, is so important because it is going to give you a return on investment both now in this life, but also for all eternity. While the physical health one, ah, it's just going to benefit you for this life. So Paul is saying to us, are you training yourself for godliness? Are you training for godliness in your life? Now, that word train in the Greek is an interesting word. It's where we get our English word gymnasium from. You saw it pop up in the reading already. So really, that is the word, and it had like this idea linked to it of an Olympic athlete training for the Olympics. So Paul is speaking about this, and I know we're about to go into Tokyo 2020. I'm sure it'll be very exciting. But Paul is speaking about this as someone who lived at a time when the Olympics were a big deal. They were going on every four years in Greece. Everyone knew about it. This was a massive moment. And we've got no proof that Paul ever went to the Olympics, but we're pretty sure that in AD 51, he was at the Isthmian Games, which is in the town of Corinth. So this was like the second biggest athletic event. This was like, I don't know, the Commonwealth Games of its time. Paul was there. And uh, Gordon Fee, one commentator, says probably at the time, Paul was making tents to help like, support his ministry. So Paul probably made a bunch of tents for some of the athletes and the attendees of these games. So Paul writes to us, challenging us to train for godliness as someone who's been involved in that kind of Olympic Commonwealth game atmosphere, you know, where everyone is together. He, he like met athletes and coaches and trainers and managers. He knew the intensity and the focus. He knew like the training regimen that these guys went through, what they ate, how much time they spent on the track or in the pool or whatever it was they did. He knew this and he's drawing this parallel saying to us, the way those guys train for the the gold medal for the wreath for those kind of gear things. He's saying we should train in the same way for godliness to become like Christ. It's an amazing picture he gives us, you know. I don't know if you've uh, studied too many Olympic athletes training uh, regimes, but I thought I'd give you two. Firstly, Michael Phelps. Any Michael Phelps fans in the room? I don't know. Can we put this picture up? He seems like he might be a little bit full of himself. But he is the Olympic athlete who has won the most medals of all time. Just to help you out, he's won 23 gold medals, three silvers, and two bronze medals. I mean, that's quite an achievement. He, at the age of seven, started swimming competitively. And from the age of 11 to 16, he didn't miss a single morning of training. We're talking he didn't take a Sunday off. He didn't take his birthday off. He didn't even take Christmas Day off. For over five years, every single day, he was in the pool training because he wanted to win that medal. You know, he knew that if he wanted to be at the top of his game, if he wanted this goal, then he needed to be in the pool training and working and building to become that kind of person. Let me show you another Olympian. This is 
Katie Ledecky. She started swimming competitively at the age of six, so a year ahead of Phelps. And uh, she had already qualified for the Olympics by eighth grade. So I don't know what you guys were doing when you were 13 or 14, but she was just crushing it. She currently spends four to six hours a day in the pool. And then on top of that, she gets into the gym and sees a physiotherapist and does whatever other training that goes along with this. But going into the Rio Olympics in 2016, they estimate that she'd put in 15,000 hours of training. Now, any of you who are big Malcolm Gladwell fans and know that whole 10,000-hour rule about expertise and whatever, she jumped another 5,000 ahead. And at the age of 19, she won four Olympic gold medals and broke a bunch of records. So Paul is speaking to us with this kind of thing in mind. And he's saying to us here that it is not through trying, but it's through training that they became the kind of people who won those medals. And he's challenging us on our training for godliness. So how do we do this? How, how do we train? How do we like uh, prepare ourselves to become more like Jesus? Well, our training obviously is not going to be in the pool. It's not going to be on the track. But actually in the scriptures, we see a number of spiritual exercises or disciplines or habits that we can put in place in our lives to train ourselves for godliness. And Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. He says in verse 5 to 10, put to death. I love Paul's strong language, eh? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That's another way, really, of saying greed or materialism. He says, that is idolatry. On account of all of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, as followers of Jesus, living for him, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul says two big ideas there. Put to death, put off, put away. And then on the other end of the spectrum, he says, put on a new self and be changed into the image of Christ. Does that make sense? What Paul's saying there is that training for godliness starts with what we stop. Training for godliness starts with what we stop. I guess I want to ask you this morning, what are the things in your life that you need to stop doing, you need to put to death, that you need to put off, so that you can train to become more and more like Jesus? What do you need to stop today? I know some of you are maybe sitting there and you're thinking, I've tried that though. I've tried the putting to death stuff. I've tried the putting off. I've tried to do the good stuff and leave the bad stuff behind, and I can't. I'm honestly stuck. I've been wrestling with some of these things for years. I would love to change, but I can't change. But Paul promises us it's possible. Charles Duhigg uh, literally wrote the book on habits, and he gives us hope that we can change by practically showing us the way. I think this is a really helpful quote from him, and he says, Habits aren't destiny. I'd love you just to think about that for a second. Habits aren't destiny. What you do doesn't determine who you'll become or where you're going to end up. If you keep doing them, it might. But the things that you are stuck in, the sins you might be struggling with now, don't determine where you're going if we put them off, if we put them to death. Habits aren't destiny. Habits can be ignored, changed, or replaced. But when a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making, stops working so hard, or diverts focus to other tasks. 
So unless you deliberately fight a habit, what the Bible would say is put to death those things. FaceTime such a gift there. Unless you put those things to death, unless you find new routines, the pattern will unfold automatically. I'm sure a lot of us have felt that in our lives. If we want to stop something, but it just seems to automatically keep going on inside of us. Duke University did a study on habits, and their results show that 40% of our actions come from habits rather than from intentional decision-making. Isn't that crazy? To think that maybe half of the things we do are things that we've just started to do, and now they're habit to us, and we're just running on autopilot, so we don't even think about doing them, they just happen. That's your life, that's my life, that's the way we live. So Duhigg again continues and says, a habit is a behavior that starts out as a choice, starts out as a choice, and that through consistent practice becomes a nearly unconscious can you think of any of those in your life? But for those of us who are stuck today, there is hope. How do we change? He says, the evidence is clear. If you want to change a habit, you must find an alternative routine or way. And your odds of success go up dramatically when you commit to changing as part of a group. Belief or faith is essential. And it grows out of a communal experience, even if that community is only as large as two people. Let me give you two practical examples he gives in his book. He says, if you want to quit smoking, figure out a different routine that will satisfy the cravings filled by cigarettes. Then find a support group, a collection of other former smokers or a community that believe you can stay away from nicotine and use that group when you feel you might stumble. What about if you want to lose weight? I'm sure there's a few of us in that space in this room. If you want to lose weight, study your habits to determine why you really leave your desk for a snack each day and then find someone else to take a walk with you, to talk with at their desk rather than in the cafeteria, find a group that tracks weight loss goals together or someone who also wants to keep a stock of apples rather than chips nearby. Don't you love those pesky chips? So really what he's saying there is if we want to change, we need to work out why we're doing the things we do. We need to find new routines to replace those with in a community of people believing that we can change. And I looked at those and I thought, we're in a really lucky situation because we're in a community of people called the church. We're in a group of people who are committed to following Jesus and changing together. And in this community, we have faith. We believe not only that God wants us to change, but that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is helping us and empowering us to change and become more like him. So each one of us in this room can have great reason to have hope that we can change. Before we talk about what we need to put on in the rest of Colossians 3, we do need to see the importance of repenting of sin and turning from it to live a new life. I say that because what we do does something to us. What we do does something to us. And I think we all know this already. You know, what fills our minds or fills our hearts or desires, the, the thing that take up our time or fill our schedules, the things that we choose to do with our lives, they shape us in good or bad ways. They have an effect on us. And that means that sin is not neutral and it's not innocent, even though it might look it initially. Sin is not neutral or innocent. It shapes us in a negative way. And the decisions we make every single day, whether those are small or big ones, are starting to shape us. It's kind of like the snowball effect. You know, One or two little decisions over time grow and grow and grow until they're a massive thing which shapes and influences us and influences the people around us in sometimes dramatic ways. 
What I'm trying to say this morning is that we are changed from the inside out by the work of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in our hearts and that we change ourselves from the outside in by the things that we do and the influences we allow, allow on our lives. I, am, I think I know this is true because of some experiences I've had with film. And I think movies are just an obvious way of looking at this, but I know this is not the only way. I remember being 12 again. Skateboarding and youth started at the same time for me. But I remember going to youth for the first time as a 12-year-old, and our group got split up in two. Half of the group went and we watched The Mighty Ducks, and the other half went and we watched Free Willy, which is a movie about this orca whale escaping from captivity. And at the end of that, what the youth leader did is he brought us all back together, and he said, now we're going to play duster hockey. Which team do you think won? The Mighty Ducks team. Luckily, otherwise this whole illustration would have been destroyed, you know? Because the point he was trying to make is what we do does something to us. The things that influence us shape what we do, you know? So obviously the team that had been watching Free Willy about animal cruelty and this whale that finally frees himself and gets into the ocean to live a free life, you know, the boy standing there as Willy jumps over him into the ocean, big moment in my childhood. They're crying. They're like moved emotionally. There's tissues all over the floor. It's like they are not in a place to play competitive sports. We, on the other hand, have just been watching this ragtag bunch of underdogs who were playing like, I don't know, roller hockey on the streets, like rise up the ranks of ice skating to beat the greatest team in their league. We were on fire. The opportunity to play duster hockey was like the greatest thing that we ever had, you know? So we wiped the floor with them. We destroyed that group of people. And I think we know this from movies. Like the movies we watch shape our, our moods. They shape our emotions. They shape how we feel. And it's obviously like that with a bunch of things in life. But I, I remember watching it, like action films or watching something like The Fast and the Furious and coming out of gateway cinemas or whatever, getting into my car, getting on the freeway and being like, <laughs> 240, here we go, <laughs> let's race. Or going around those circles around gateway and you're just like, handbrake turn, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. And not because you're responsible, but you're on the edge of your seat wanting to just drift around. And Not that I'm a good driver, I'd probably roll the car. But what we do does something to us. The influences on our lives shape us. And what Paul is saying to us in Colossians 3 is there are some things that we need to stop and cut out of our lives and there are some things we need to start and add to our lives if we want to become like Jesus and we want to change. Now, I think most of us really just want a quick fix. You know, we, we want an easy solution. One last week said, like the microwavable faith. You know, we just want an instant response. We want to change instantly. Uh, and I want that too. I want just a life hack for how I become like Jesus, how I change. I don't know if any of you watched Extreme Makeover back in the day. No shame. Tari. Okay, Megan, you're out there. Okay, we've got a few. We've got a few takers. Now, there were two types. There was like the body edition, which was when you went in and saw a surgeon, and they did a lot of plastic surgery. You know, they would just come in, and if you had some crow's feet, they'd sort that out. They'd do lifts and tucks and liposuction, like whatever else you wanted. They would sort you out so you looked the way you wanted to look. And then there was, I think we've actually got a picture of that, Zach, if you can put that up. How's that little before or after situation going on over there? So that was the original Extreme Makeover. The second one was Extreme Makeover Home Edition. This was more like a feel-good family kind of version. Now I see you guys are excited about this. Not into body augmentation, this group of people, eh? <laughs> the second group are all about the home renovation. So this would happen, and often it was so feel-good. They would send a family away on this amazing holiday. Often they were like a family in need. And they would get to have fun together. And this team of experts would come in and then renovate that house and tear it down from like top to tail or whatever. 
and then completely replace everything inside, and the family would come back. Everyone would cry. It was an amazing gift. I think we feel very much like that, but in a spiritual sense. We wish God and his angels or whatever would just come in, and we'd be on a table out for a couple of hours, or we could go on a nice holiday, and we came back, and we were like a whole new person, you know? It's like your whole way of thinking has changed. You think like Christ, and like your desires and your loves and your art, all of that stuff has changed. From the inside out, you're a new person. You feel like Christ. Or your actions and your habits have changed, and you behave like Christ. But the scriptures teach us there isn't an extreme makeover character edition. You know, that, that doesn't happen. The way we change is by stopping and starting. The way we change is by training for godliness. And Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 12 to 17, Put on men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In this passage, we see new attitudes, we see new character, we see new habits, we see new responses, all being put on by us. This is what we do. We are adding these to our lives and our faith. And this is what it looks like for us to train ourselves for godliness. This is how we do this thing he's called us to do in 1 Timothy 4. These are the spiritual exercises or disciplines that we put in place in our lives to train like those uh, Olympic athletes. But what I love about this passage is notice that that happens in everyday normal life. This is not like at a monastic retreat or like some beautiful setting in the mountains away from work and people to pray and be with God. These things are happening in our normal lives. The week that you're going into now, this is where these things are meant to happen. Because we see here that we are given opportunities in real everyday life to forgive those who've sinned against us. Our family members or a co-worker or a friend or someone in this community, we're given an opportunity to forgive them as God has forgiven us. Christ. It talks about us bearing one another's burdens. And in the real realities of everyday life, we can bear the burdens of people who frustrate us and have needs and come to us for help. This passage is saying to us that actually in the stress and anxiety and feelings of being overwhelmed that we go through so often, we have an opportunity to put on the peace of Christ and to let that rule in our hearts. Paul's vision here isn't that we leave our normal lives to change. It's that in the midst of our lives, we welcome God into them. We welcome God into these situations. And in those moments, we change the way we act to put on the new way of Jesus, to live out of our new identity in him. Richard Foster has written about these things extensively. He's got a book called The Celebration of Discipline, which maybe sounds like an oxymoron to some of us. But he speaks about this list of spiritual disciplines or exercises, and he gives 14 that we can put in place in our lives to train for godliness. The first is prayer, you know, speaking to God and listening to God. Second is worship, which I know we've done this morning, but it's not just singing. It's also a life lived for God's glory in everything we do. 
The third is scripture, which I guess is reading and memorizing and meditating and marinating, whatever else in the words of God. I'll just quickly go through them. He talks about fasting and feasting or celebrating and giving and reflection and community and Sabbath and submission, which might sound harsh to some of us. But he's talking about submitting to God's rule as king. We submit to his authority and submit to the authority of the scriptures. And we submit to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. And we submit to leaders in the church and leaders in our workplaces and in organizations in society and in the government. We submit to the leading of the spirit. He speaks about guidance and simplicity. Now, simplicity really is like in Psalm 73, verse 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. Simplicity is saying, I don't need nice stuff. I don't need a bigger house, a better car. I don't need a better job. Jesus alone satisfies me. So I will be content in him, not things. And the last two he gives are repentance and confession of our sins to God and to one another. And as we train with these exercises or disciplines, we begin to change. Like doing a super circuit at, at the gym, we, we change as we do these things. Jeremy Treat says, The disciplines of the Christian life are less like boxes to be checked and more like a river that slowly carves a path in your soul. I don't know, did any of you do geography at school or university? Okay, a few of us. I remember distinctly learning about Oxbow Lakes. Any other Oxbow Lake fans in the room? There we go, a few of us. Come on, Nate. We got some here, Nick. So this is an Oxbow Lake. Maybe put up the other pic for me, Zach. This is an Oxbow Lake. It's what happens when a river's winding along and it comes against resistance, so it goes around the resistance and it creates one of those bends or an Oxbow. And what happens with that river is the river runs along and it hits that and it goes around it to form the path of least resistance. But over time, that river is eroding the ground that it's bumping into till eventually, picture two, we see actually some of those oxbows get cut off and the river finds a new path. And those bows that had formed before are left as little lakes or little scars in the ground. And what Jeremy Treat is saying there is that those spiritual exercises or disciplines we put in place in our lives form us. They erode some of the, the things in our soul that are not good. They shape us into a new kind of person to become more and more like Jesus slowly over time. One last quote from a man named Richard Foster who gave us that list of disciplines. He explains how we train for godliness and says, we do the things we can do. Things like prayer, fasting, meditating on scripture, committing to community like this, so that we do the things we can't do. Like love our enemies and forgive people who've sinned against us and overcome the sin that we're stuck in. You see, when we do these spiritual exercises, what we're doing is we're bringing ourselves into the presence of God. We're coming before him by all of these different things and saying, God, would you change me? As we spoke about, we abide in his presence. We behold him. And the spirit of God empowers us to change, to live a new kind of life, to become more like Jesus. That's what this is all about. You see, doing the exercise isn't the goal. No one goes to gym just to go to gym. Or if you do, I don't get it. You're weird, like you've got a different wiring to me. We exercise, we do these things to be fit and healthy, you know? And it's the same with these spiritual exercises. We're not just praying for the sake of prayer. We're praying to know God. We're engaging the scriptures to know God. That is the end goal. That's why we do the things that we do. Let me end with one last crucial idea. Can you put up the, the last picture of the 
cyclist, Kristen Armstrong. This lady is an amazing lady. She, um, she competed in three different sets of Olympics, and on her 40, or the eve of her 43rd birthday, she won Olympic gold again. And basically, she stood in front of a group of people who were Olympic hopefuls, and she spoke about her experience. And she said that the hardest thing for her wasn't the physical training. She said that it was actually letting go of the negative ideas that seeped into her mind about what she's capable of. She said to them, my takeaway from Rio was that you have to stay your course. You have to follow your vision. After 12 years as a professional cyclist and three years, three times winning the gold medal, my success always came back to my why. You have to know why you're doing it. And it comes back to my vision. The vision is one of the most powerful things you can have in life. A vision is a mental picture of a result you want to achieve. A picture that's so strong and clear, it helps make the result real. When it comes to this Why We Change series, we need to ask, what is your why? Why change? You know, why put in the effort and the energy? Why do the work? Why train for godliness? Why do these spiritual exercises? What is your why? What is your vision? Why, why would you do this kind of thing? We've already said that we're not trying to earn spiritual brownie points with God. You know, we've already got his love. We've already got his forgiveness. You know, we know those things. Paul answers it this way in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end, the goal of changing, becoming like Jesus, growing in godliness, for to this end, we toil and strive because, this is our why, this is our vision. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. As we wrap up today, I want to ask you, Harvest City, is your hope set on Jesus or is it set on something else? Is Jesus your vision or is something else your vision? Is, is he your reason or what is the reason that you've got to be here or to do these things? Is he worthy of your toiling and striving? Because it's very easy for us to get pumped up today like, woo! New day, new me, new week. I'm going to change. I'm going to put these things in place. This sounds cool. Let's train for godliness. Let's do this thing. But after a few days, this can very easily wear down if the reason we've got, the vision, is wrong. As that athlete says, we want to stay the course. We want to remember the vision. And if we see Christ and Him crucified, if we see Jesus and think of what He's done for us, God's great love, despite our great sin, It'll be a constant motivator for us to continue to follow him and to train for godliness, to stop some things, to start some things, and to become the kind of people he's called us to be. Can I ask you guys to stand together with me? Before I pray, I just want to be very practical with us. Um, in that book on habits, Charles Duhigg says that the the common thing is to believe that it takes 21 days for a habit to change. And he says that's true. But the reality is for some of the harder habits and things in our lives, we need 66 days to overcome them and change. And I want to say that because today some of you might be feeling stuck. Today you might be so encouraged and go, cool, I'm going to stop and start. And it takes a couple of weeks and there's a couple of mess-ups. And I want to say this is a long-term process we're committing to. 66 days plus of following Jesus, of training, of stopping, of starting, and becoming more and more like him. I want to encourage you today just to think of one thing. He says if you put on a bunch of new things at one time, you're likely going to fail at them all. But this morning, would you choose one of those exercises? 
and say, I'm going to train for godliness in this way. I suggest maybe for some of you, it's getting up a little bit earlier tomorrow. It's making time to be alone with God where you can just read the Bible and pray. For some of you, it really is community. You, you need to connect deeper in this church. Join a life group, do starting points, be known by someone, but be connected in this community. Then even bring that before God. God, what is the exercise you want me to put in place in my life? Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just we welcome you here and we ask you for your help. I think all of us are here because we want to know you more and we want to change. And I just ask you for your leading now, Holy Spirit, for your infilling, for your empowering, for your guidance. Would you come and take us by the hand and help us to stop some things and start some things? Would you help us to put some things to death in our lives and would you plant some new, beautiful, righteous things inside of us? If you are here today and you're the person who walked in knowing I'm not a Christian, but today is saying, I want to actually begin that journey of following him, you're welcome to come and chat to me afterwards. But Lord, I just pray that you would lead and guide each one of us to know you and become more like you. In Jesus' name.